This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared it subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. Good afternoon. You are tuned into a special presentation of the Warlocks of Palo Alto, The Grateful Dead as Mass Ritual, Part 1, Episode number 33 of Subliminal Jihad. Dimitri and Khalid launch into a kaleidoscopic, meandering, improvisational deep dive on The Grateful Dead. They look into the band's extensive links to the CIA MKUltra LSD research at Stanford, Ken Keasley's acid tests, the deep folkloric origins of the Grateful Dead legend, Hank Harrison's anthropological framing of the dead amidst San Francisco's bohemian roots, and they begin to unpack the various counterculture figures and ruling class misfits hovering around the deadhead scene. Here is Subliminal Jihad. Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, for, I think we just realized, a pretty monumental episode number, episode 33. Yeah, didn't uh, think about that beforehand, but uh, it mm. may be thematically appropriate, uh, you know. Uh, it, wasn't, you know. it might, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the tendrils of the Scottish Rite kind of stretch everywhere, and <laughs> I think they do at least brush up against uh, the topic uh, that we're going to tackle today, which is one that I've definitely been excited about uh, and have referenced, I think, going back to the earliest episodes. Uh, you know, I think uh, any discussion that we have on this podcast about Silicon Valley and Stanford and the San Francisco Bay area and the sixties and LSD. It's almost impossible that sooner or later you were not going to run up against the jam band supergroup uh, 
that I'm sure most of you know uh, as the Grateful Dead. I went a little hard. You know, I I, I told Kala I, I kind of went Bigfoot mode in my research <laughs> for this uh, right. because there are so many there's so many kaleidoscopic tangents that you can spin off from the Grateful Dead. So much so that we might we might have to split this episode into two parts. Uh, or I, I think definitely we'll revisit uh, some of the char- the some of the dramatis personae that feature yes. in this story at a later date mm-hmm. because they uh, they do have this habit of like popping up again and again and yeah. again in very We've strange. Definitely- yeah, we've definitely touched on them before, like Ken Kesey, Timothy Leary, you know, mm-hmm. like all these people, They, uh, Terrence McKenna, they yeah, all like come up it. endlessly. Uh, they're all very much like, you know, uh, I mean, the Grateful Dead is like the archetypal sort of, uh, you know, uh, psyop like art project of like the <laughs> weird like California MK complex. So yes. those are kind of like the salient like leading lights of that whole thing so yeah uh, they i mean they were as we've said before they were like literally the house band of the you know palo alto acid tests that were organized by ken kesey like which is to say in at least an indirect sense they were kind of the mk ultra house band of the 60s and uh as we'll explore in this episode you know maybe that wasn't just in 1965 maybe they ended up becoming the MK Ultra house band of all of American culture throughout the yeah. 1970s, 80s, 90s, and even till this day, where the you know Dead and Company, uh, very lamely fronted by John Mayer, in my opinion, uh, can still sell out you know shows at the Hollywood Bowl and travel around the country and play festivals and still bring an absolute army of you know the followers that are colloquially known as deadheads uh, to come and jam and vibe to their groovy tunes. Uh, but it's, it, it's a really, I mean, okay. So we're, we're putting front and center, basically our hypothesis that the grateful dead, I mean, were some kind of hypothesis like at well, this point, I feel like it's not, uh, I feel like it's not hypothetical. Uh, it didn't even like one, something that like, uh, I feel like you copied this quote into our notes a couple of times, like bolded it. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, uh, even, uh, it was a Jerry, yeah, Garcia, even Jerry Jerker, Garcia himself yes. mm-hmm. said, you know, like, uh, that he thought that it was a CIA plot possibly. Yes. Uh, he said, yeah, he told, like, he told a journalist in 1973 after the European tour, um, and they took a hiatus. He said, quote, for a long time, I dragged my feet over total commitment parentheses to the grateful dead. Garcia told me in an interview I did with him in 1989. Quote, for a while, I thought the Grateful Dead might be a CAA plot. For a long time, I vacillated. I mean, so... Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, that, that, that's a pretty heavy... I, I can't think of too many other big bands from that era, or afterwards for that matter, that would entertain in an interview that they may have been a CAA plot, and that it made them a little bit skittish about fully committing to, you know, being in this band, like that's pretty rare. But I think right there, um, now I'm just going to imagine, I don't know, you know, if people are listening to this and, uh, you know, they're regular listeners of Subliminal Jihad, I think they won't find this line of speculation all that surprising. But I'm just going to imagine, you know, I'm hoping that maybe a few deadheads will stumble upon 
this podcast. And I think we want, we want them to feel seen because I know that it's a very deep uh, emotional connection, almost a spiritual connection to the music of the dead. And so one barrier to the mainstream acceptance of the idea that the Grateful Dead could have been a CIA plot is the almost para-religious devotion to the dead uh, by the deadheads because it, it's I think it's your rank and file fans as opposed to maybe in other situations where it might be like journalists that are stepping in to do the interference. In this, it's like the whole vibe that the Grateful Dead cultivated is that they are basically, uh, you know, pun intended, uh, like a bunch of merry pranksters that, you know, don't take anything too seriously, man. And so... And Jerry Garcia was definitely sort of beloved for like his playful, pannish uh, kind of, um, you know, personality. And so they would say, you know, oh, that's just Jerry being Jerry. You know, he's just like kind of having a laugh and being a little bit hyperbolic because, you know, the, the, the hippie scene in like San Francisco, you know, around this time, they would say all kinds of far out things. And it doesn't it doesn't mean you should, you know, take him literally, you know, that he's saying that. But mm, uh, I'm actually uh, I think maybe we should take him a little more literally. And, you know, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, like even in that a documentary Long Strange Trip that I watched, like, you know, to prepare for this, like I really have no knowledge of the Grateful Dead like at all. Like, so I really am. I guess I'm not a deadhead. So maybe like, yeah, if I were like a devoted fan. I don't can't really put myself into the mentality of such a person, but like you know, I really know very knew very little. Uh, I still, you know, I'm not like a, an expert by any means necessarily. Uh, you know, uh, prior to, to reading about this, I didn't really know too much for this for this episode. That is, uh, but I've watched that documentary on Amazon, Long Strange Trip, which you know, like Amazon is not like you know a counter signal like underground frequency. You know, it's like right no. there. And, like, they pretty much, like, you know, were relatively open about the fact that they were playing at Ken Kesey's acid test, which were pretty much mm-hmm. CIA-sponsored. And they, you know, they, like, uh, even some documentary, like, ironically, like, the CIA, like, did create, you know, did turn on yeah. these people. Like, they, you know, uh-huh. like, as, but or, like, inadvertently, you know, I don't know yes. about, like, the inadvertently <laughs> thing. Yeah, like, unwittingly, well, he trained a dolphin to, you know, except, like, uh... Yeah, yeah, but, that, yeah. that is, uh, um, yeah, also not the, not the last time we'll bring up dolphins or Dr. John Lilly in this episode, but, uh... Yeah. <laughs> but, it's a whole web. Um, it's, they're all connected. It is a whole, They're all it is a whole web, yeah. and I think so. That's important to get out right away. Is that uh, the information? So even in the canonical history of the Grateful Dead, that is a hundred percent true. So we have to start from what we do know for a fact to have actually happened, which is that the Grateful Dead formed and played their first gigs uh, at this time. They were called the Warlocks. They changed their name because they found out that Lou Reed's band in New York in Greenwich Village was also called the Warlocks, which is another, eh, you know, kind of rock lore, kind of curious thing. But anyways, um, and, you know, Warlocks, Magicians, etc. But they their first shows where they came together, and more particularly where they moved, because they, they didn't start out as psychedelic rock musicians. They came out of a background that included, like, bluegrass and folk primarily. Uh, Jerry Garcia had become quite a virtuosic banjo player, and was playing in basically like a jug band with uh, Bob Weir and uh, Pigpen and a couple of the and Robert <laughs> Hunter and a couple of these other main you know core members of the Grateful Dead. And it wasn't until they got a gig playing at Ken Kesey's Acid Parties in Palo Alto that at, which were 
you know, basically the point of these acid test parties was to give out, you know, free LSD basically to everybody um, or everybody paid a buck and, you know, went in and they had a, you know, a big tub of like Kool-Aid spiked with LSD in the middle and, you know, people could drink it. And then they would do all kinds of uh, parties and uh, they would, you know, have a house band, which, you know, they they were kind of hired, I think, to make kind of like blues rock music. But then, of course, they were taking the acid as well. And then the psychedelic, trippy blues rock kind of style of the Grateful Dead, like by their own admission, coalesced uh, at the playing these various acid parties in 1965. And then, and people also, you know, I'm sure deadheads know this, but but regular people aren't aware that the Grateful Dead was not a San Francisco rock band. They were perhaps the the most notable, I, I wouldn't say only, but definitely the most famous Palo Alto rock band ever. And, you yeah. know, given everything we know about the internet and Stanford and right. Silicon Valley, this is a Silicon Valley band. Like from the, mm-hmm. they, these people grew up in Palo Alto and the surrounding cities. And, and you know, for anybody that d- isn't familiar with the Bay area, it's a very, um, uh, kind of, uh, balkanized and, decentralized kind of metropolitan area that's separated by this gigantic bay. And even though uh, Palo Alto and Stanford are on the San Francisco Peninsula, um, they're way down at the bottom. So they're probably about like 40 miles south of San Francisco or 30 miles south. Um, You know, it can be quite a long time with traffic. I'm sure there wasn't as much traffic back then. So you could kind of cruise around the Bay and, uh, you know, car culture was very important to young people. So, you know, they would go up to San Francisco and come back. They they were definitely, you know, part of this Bay area kind of, um, you know, uh, artistic milieu broadly defined, but they were a Palo Alto band that started playing in bookstores and coffee shops in Palo Alto. Um, so they were like Uh, well primed to be in close proximity to a lot of the interesting research that was happening around that time at at Stanford. One of their big lyricists, uh, John Perry Barlow, who worked with them and wrote like, uh, you know, their, one of their big political songs, or I think, you know, what's considered to be their most political song, uh, throwing stones, (laughs) was, like, a real big, like, internet guy, uh, like, a cyber libertarian activist, and who was, like, super into the internet, who was in, like, The Well, uh, in 1986, which had, like, a bunch of deadhead, uh, you know, connections in general, like, uh, there were a lot of deadheads involved in it, and yeah, so, uh, they were super plugged in to all Mm -hmm. that from, from the start, yeah. Yeah, and John Um, Perry Barlow, like, as we, some people might be more familiar with him from his work related to internet stuff. I mean, it's usually a colorful thing on his resume that people bring up to be like, whoa, how cool, how trippy, man. He was a Grateful Dead lyricist, and then he got into Silicon Valley. As we'll dive in later with Barlow, uh, he wrote an article in Forbes magazine in 1993 called Why Spy, uh, that he was invited to Langley to... Uh, basically help uh, advise the CIA on how to build, uh, how to basically set up like an interface with the internet because he claims at his time that they were like, they were thinking old hat, man. You know, these guys were all squares. And he helped them uh, set up their intranet, you know, their classified intranet thing. And also, you know, advise them to like set up their own website, which like blew their minds, bro. What? You know, and, yeah. and all this kind of stuff. But like you're reading between the lines of this article and you're like, well, okay, you are advising the CIA um, to build an intranet. You're, you're so counterculture, bro. He also was like, 
you know, uh, best friends with Dick Cheney and like trying to do <laughs> yep. a suicide attack in the sixties. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll we'll get yeah. to him. There's so much of him. Uh, uh, but uh, but anyways.
the well, the whole story around the fact that they have the grateful that they're called the Grateful Dead is that it was like random, like that they, you know, uh, some like randomly pointed to like uh, Jerry Garcia, like randomly. Yeah, Jerry Garcia to, and Phil Lesh were it, hanging out, and Phil Lesh yeah. like gave him a dictionary, and he opened it up to a random page, and it said the Grateful Dead, and they were like, "Oh my God, you know, Eureka, we found it." And I don't even buy the idea, like, for one, I take issue with, I think the whole story's fake and made up, and I don't think that that it was random. And Mm -hmm. I also think that, like, it would not be in a dictionary. It would have to have been an encyclopedia. Like, no dictionary has Grateful Dead in it. Like, it's an obscure term. And what this term meant before, like, uh, you know, we would refer to basically like a classification of folktale, uh, mm-hmm. involving basically someone who gives money to like a, a for the burial of a dead person and that dead person returns from the grave to help them in some way uh, yeah. like maybe we'll read some of these Grateful Dead folktales if we have time although I do doubt it uh, <laughs> but you know it is a common uh, folktale topos actually like the Grateful Dead is like an Arn Thompson we talked about the Arn Thompson uh, classification system on the podcast before in our Giants episode mm-hmm. um, so uh, I guess for those who are on Alara the uh, you know the Arn Thompson classification is like the Grateful Dead you know and this, this kind of topos and you know a lot of it I think is influenced by the fact that, uh, I mean, even in uh, his book, uh, which I think uh, that you mentioned, uh, Hank Harrison's book, he yeah. talks kind of about how this is like, a, he says, the seemingly strange values that exploded in the media in the mid-60s in San Francisco were actually archaic traditions. The erroneously named flower children were actually gifted rebels who were cautiously applying ideologies derived from numerous utopian experiments. The medieval socialism of the Manichees and the Cathars blended well with Buddhism, the Kabbalah, and the Tarot. Uh, mm-hmm. These traditions took hold in the mystical element, which can best be found rooted in a pre-colonial form of Freemasonry, a form <laughs> opposed in every way to the anti-intellectualism of the white Anglo-Saxon. First mm. of all, like, is that, what, for, what is a pre-colonial form of Freemasonry, for one? And also, like, wasn't it white Anglo... I guess the Scottish Rite is, like, Celtic in theory, but I feel like Freemasonry has always had its proponents among white Anglo-Saxons, like, from its, you know, uh, earliest... And if we want like, you know, to get specific... Yeah, like, you know, mostly uh, slave slave owners uh, and pro-Confederate people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, literally founded the Scottish Rite. Um, mm-hmm. It's founded by Confederate general. So, obviously, it's expanded beyond that. But, yeah, that that is a very curious... Uh, I, I, I was kind of surprised to see... The depth of, um, but I appreciate Hank Harrison's very um, occultish kind of um, contextualizing of the scene in which, you know, the Grateful Dead kind of came out of. And it, it should be mentioned that Hank Harrison is like an extremely interesting and sus character. Um, he he wrote uh, a couple volumes of a kind of um, almost like a folkloric ethnography of the Grateful Dead. Um, mm-hmm. And... He could do that because he knew a lot of these guys. He was a, the bassist Phil Lesh's roommate in 1960, uh, I think down in maybe San Mateo. And <clears throat> um, 
and and then became friends with like the the kind of Palo Alto music scene and Jerry Garcia in the early 60s and he went on to become the first manager of the Warlocks uh, before they became the Grateful Dead but also you know I think uh, the, the big fact elephant that in the room they were first the Warlocks and then became the Grateful Dead is like just it's not like a random name that sound I mean it does have a certain like sensibility to it like when you hear it like it definitely you know uh, is evocative but it's got a good uh, ring to you it. know I don't it definitely yeah it does have a good ring to it it's memorable but the fact that like the interaction yeah uh, anyway sorry uh, I'll let yeah, you so uh, yeah yeah, the, yeah the one thing yeah because I think we'll maybe I think the Hank Harrison's book while I don't trust all of it is kind of a good place to start to like set the scene uh, and maybe even the more like you know vague occulty dimensions but like the one thing maybe a lot of people know about Hank Harrison which is one of the many weird connect like you know uh, rabbit holes in this story is that he is Courtney Love's father. Hmm. And, you know, is know. yes. Yeah. He's Courtney Love's father and has actually written a book alleging that Courtney Love murdered Kurt Cobain. Um, <laughs> so yeah. they're not on, they're not on good terms. Um, but uh, and, you know, Courtney Love in her own, you know, way uh, described, you know, she grew up as a baby around the time that the Grateful Dead was like getting together and I think lived in like a commune house with a lot of the members of the Grateful Dead when she was like a toddler. Um, but then there's been all kinds of bizarre, you know, allegations from like her mother, who I think was a, a poet from a wealthy New York family, that Hank Harrison would give Courtney Love LSD when she was a toddler and do things that kind of sounded like experiments, like put her in a playpen with like pit bulls and like give her LSD so, you know, just keep that in mind with Hank Harrison that, like, this guy has a uh, – I mean, he also admits to just abandoning Courtney and his wife, like, when he decided to go manage the Grateful Dead and just, like, abandon them in San Francisco. And, like, so he's kind of not, um, you know, not the uh, – maybe the greatest guy. But he does seem to be very, very knowledgeable about, like, European paganism and Freemasonry and occultism and I think he was getting his master's degree at San Francisco State around the time. So he had kind of an academic background. He also was in the Army. Um, I've seen it said some places that he was an Army intelligence officer, probably in the either late 50s or early 60s. Um, you know, not necessarily during the time he was doing this. But anyways, like... Um, yeah. Th- there However, was a lot like him. a lot of the time, what passes for like scholarship, like at San Francisco State, like during that time, like doesn't hold up like nowadays. And like I Probably don't like, necessarily like trust like his uh, insight into this stuff. I certainly don't like buy the notion of. I don't buy the notion of like medieval socialism at all. I just think that that's like you know one of those things where you retroactively project things into the past like that weren't like properly formulated like theoretically uh and i also think that like i don't know i just feel like this hodgepodge of like medieval socialism buddhism kabbalah the tarot uh Mm -hmm. and the whole idea of a pre-colonial form of freemasonry that's opposed to the anti-intellectualism of the white anglo-saxon like i definitely think that what despite the scottish right being called the scottish right i feel like its origins are still with white Anglo-Saxons. Yeah, as you mentioned, like, Albert Pike was, like, a big popularizer in the United States. Even before that, though, I think that it probably was, like, you know, I think that the reason why it's called the Scottish Rite is probably because of, like, some association with 
James six and one or uh, James two and seven, I guess is the one who's associated with it. Um, but I don't know if like, I feel like that's still pretty Anglo uh, ultimately. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, but I do think that like the insight, uh, like the core of it is correct in that like uh, their, the relation to the people have with the dead and the, even the association of dead heads themselves. I mean, there's two levels to it because on one hand, like they're dead heads, like they're, you know, there's a mental, like they're mentally dead, like they're tuned out in some way that like refers to the sort of psychedelic aspect of this. But I also think that like the relationship between the dead and the fans kind of mirrors like cults around the dead, like mm-hmm. from, you know, a pre-modern context, like that. I think that a lot of these, uh, you know, folk tales of the grateful dead, kind of represent you know if you give if you pay into the system of the dead you know you'll get something back and that's something that like you know was a lot of the time cultivated through like uh cults around the the tombs of saints or martyrs something like that Mm -hmm. and i think that that's kind of what and a lot of the time living saints or you know uh in different religious traditions sort of had a liminal quality where they were intercessors like among the dead uh Mm -hmm. and they had the ability to communicate with the dead like that's what made someone like a holy person they had some kind of interaction with that and i think that some of that aspect of like the fandom around the grateful dead is like uh sublimated or or or, or hidden or occulted in some way but i think that that uh the fact that that's the name like it has like a very clear resonance uh Mm -hmm. and like the parallels like really especially when they're drawn out deliberately in this way more or less by uh people like hank harrison i think that uh you know the resonance is definitely there like the like you know this and you know with the the skeleton all their symbology like Mm -hmm. i think that there, this is something that's being tapped into for sure. Yeah, um, and that's definitely the creative principles around the Grateful Dead project. I mean, we talked, I think, before about how Jerry Garcia was a huge fan of the Urantia book. Um, and right, yeah, one, he carried it around with him, and it's like this figured it all out, man. Yeah, like uh, this is the most important <laughs> yeah. book I've ever read. Yeah, yeah, like and that, he was right? he was obsessed with kind of like occulty kind of things. Uh, Robert Hunter, who was the first and kind of probably the the most dominant lyricist. This is a weird thing about the Grateful Dead is that they had two in-house lyricists that didn't play any instruments, but just wrote all the lyrics for them. And the lyrics, the, the amount of care that they put into their lyrics, which I mean, are highly kind of romantic and like impressionistic. And they're not, I mean, um, it, it, this isn't like a Henley Fry level of quality that we're talking about here or a yeah. Bob Dylan level of quality. This is like, goofy allusions to mysterious things, but I think there is, I I think it it would be foolish of me to dismiss all these lyrics as just gobbledygook and kind of, um, you know, word salad, free association, hippie dippy LSD stuff because Robert Hunter was Mm -hmm. like very fascinated with like Rosicrucianism and uh, Eastern mysticism and things like that and worked a lot of veiled references into their lyrics. So there is like an occulted uh, kind of like Kenneth Anger's movies. There's something going on between the lines that uh, evokes a feeling. And um, yeah, having watched that 1977 Grateful Dead movie that Jerry Garcia directed, 
directed. Like, I would much rather watch, like, hours of Kenneth Anger than, like, watch that. <laughs> like, I could not handle Like, it was awful. But, uh... Yeah, if you yeah, want to get like, a first, uh... Yeah, that, that is one... The song that opens the Grateful Dead movie, which is released in 1977, is one that, uh... We'll probably come back to, because it's, like, it's a slightly later song of theirs, but U.S. Blues, which I think kind of stands as the most sus uh, lyrics of any Grateful Dead song, wherein Jerry Garcia, over a kind of um, like a goofy kind of carnivalesque blues beat, you know, sings, uh, I'm Uncle Sam, that's who I am, been hiding out in a rock and roll band. And then he makes a bunch of set, uh, sus references to like shaking the hand of P.T. Barnum, who's a Mason, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I stay 72 come rain or shine. Like, you know, give me five. I'm still alive. Um, you know, uh, I'll, uh, I'll run your life. I'll, I'll steal, I'll share your wealth. I'll, I'll steal your wife. Um, all these kind of things that I'm sure a tripped out deadhead would just be like, yeah, man, like get off my back, uncle Sam. Yeah. I'm just going to like live my life. But it, you know, I'm uncle Sam. That's who I am. Been hiding out in a rock and roll band. Uh, and as we're about to see that is maybe, um, kind of a, just, you know, revelation of the method, uh, kind of, rubbing it in your face perhaps um Um, with a dancing uncle sam skeleton making like weird duck noises in a really creepy way and like a and a literally like an illuminati pyramid with like a flaming eye like flying around in the cosmos Um, right yeah and the ufos zapping everything i mean you know it's a little heavy-handed like they're laying it on pretty thick but yeah i do think that it's interesting i mean i thought of while i was watching it that sort of thomas jefferson quote um, about, like, you know, uh, the, how the land is, like, you know, uh, like, the living are kind of the, entitled to, to the land, or, yeah, the earth belongs in usufruct to the living, uh, and, uh, you know, the dead having neither rights nor powers over it, um, and, uh, yeah, I guess that's, uh, an editorial note, uh, but his quote is, uh, the land belongs in, in usufruct to the living, that the people, uh, who are alive have, uh, more, control over the land uh and mm-hmm. uh i find like the whole re- like you know that's a fundamental kind of american idea that's very much baked into uh the uh you know the history of america and the unfolding of like uh you know uh, the entire history of this country and oh yeah cult, yeah yeah the idea of like this cult around the dead which is something very fundamental to uh, the way pre-modern societies were organized and the sort of disposition of that with uh, America in the sort of very chaotic, psychedelic way. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, because I yeah. feel like that's kind of the tension that's being wrestled with, like the absence of, I mean, I guess, you know, it's something that could be, uh, you know, projected across the entire uh, moment of, of the 60s or, or maybe a moment that we're still sort of seeing unfold or experiencing the aftershocks of but it's you know the uh, the re- grappling with this tension uh, between like the uh, the absence of this kind of spiritual network or this sort of spiritual scaffolding in American society
the dead where he talks about the name and kind of touches on a few things but also gives you a, a general little historical kind of background for it um uh, but makes a lot of spiritual or mystical allusions um so he writes in 1965 a san francisco rock and roll group took the name the grateful dead the name had a ring to it it had shock value and a show business flair but none of the group's leaders or friends had any idea that the name would evoke an immense genie a flying eyeball, an energy cloud that would last for more than two decades. Over those two decades, the Grateful Dead became the single most popular unknown rock group in the world, a group known to everyone who broke the law, but to almost no one on the straight side. The social schism was very clear-cut, and the Grateful Dead became a symbol of solidarity against the squares. A legend from a myth, they and the other San Francisco bands had inherited the holy grail of the 1950s. The hot rod music lived on. Their name grew shorter. From a title to a familiar name, now they were The Dead, every man's band en route to heaven or hell or the maze at Chartres. The Dead and the other San Francisco bands in the 1960s were the first bands to do extensive live FM, AM simulcasting with television and live quadraphonic broadcasts. The Dead advanced recording technology and filed for patents on innovative recording devices. They also developed a wall of sound public address system that has never been surpassed. This is writing in the 80s. Uh, Each seat in any hall or any outside arena anywhere could be tuned for optimum acoustic accuracy. The Dead were one of the first to use advanced microprocessors in the music production system and the first to admit taking massive amounts of LSD. They started as a blues band, survived the erroneous acid rock label, and went beyond that rubric to be heralded as a seminal source of new music. All this went on while they simultaneously evolved into a huge tribal family and extended kinship group. Like most of the Northern California bands, the Dead developed their own style and their own instruments. The Dead had no single sound, but rather a continuing kaleidoscope of sounds and musical expressions from tuneful to symphonic, from harmonic to atonal, and from silent to very, very loud indeed. The Dead, as a family, were also an accurate microcosm of the large alternate culture around them, a subculture which continued to develop on into the 1980s and beyond, a subculture which eventually made everybody strive for individuation, misfits first, individuals later. I remember meeting each of the musicians in The Dead at critical points in their careers. Phil Lesh, the bass player, and I were roommates in 1960, and again from 1970 to 73, he was always called Professor. We absorbed Nietzsche and idolized the nihilist samurai, the east-west cowboy, Kurosawa's samurai knight as portrayed by Tishuro Mufune, the green knight of Arthurian legend. 
I met Jimmy, Jerry Garcia in San Carlos at the bookstall and at Kepler's bookstore down in Menlo Park back in 1961. Most of us were smoking grass in those days, and the police hated it. Garcia banjoed and sang bluegrass and folk songs with an auto-harp wizard named Marshall Leicher from Yale, and with Bob Hunter, who wrote most of the Grateful Dead lyrics. Garcia was seeking some pure dimension, but always a show business dimension, too. Cynical, funny, serious. Um, so... Uh, you see right there, I thought that was interesting. They were absorbing Nietzsche and idolizing the nihilist samurai, the East-West cowboy, yeah. which, of course, is like a huge influence on uh, George Lucas, uh, who right. Hank Harrison was also friends with, at least at some point, um, in this right. uh, this kind of era. And the hot rod culture as well. Uh, I think he's very – he talks a lot about the hot rod culture – and the biker culture in the Bay Area uh, in the 50s going into the 60s. And while he doesn't mention him by name, he's obviously talking about uh, – he, he's obviously kind of referencing the culture of like Scorpio Rising and Custom Car Commandos, which were the films you know Kenneth Anger made in San Francisco in the early 60s, uh, which Hank Harrison even admits had a certain white supremacist vibe to them often, mm-hmm. um, but were a huge part – you know, uh, Harrison – Harrison writes elsewhere about like hot rodding and just the um, well, he, you know, he writes um, about like the sexual liberation and how it was connected to the development of cars and freeways. You know, he says sexual liberation required mobility and mild winter weather in order to go nude on a public beach. One needed sunshine in a car. California provided both elements free of charge. All you had to do was steal the car. The two ingredients were simply not available on the Eastern seaboard, at least not in the late 1950s. The motorcycle and hot rod became major status symbols in the California youth culture. The lead sled became the dream car and sexuality was to use a Quaker term bundled with the new mobility. Uh, Daddy's car was not as significant as one's own short, and the ownership of a car represented a passage right. Thus, independence meant fixing up a clunker of one's own. The ownership of the pink slip was the main material goal. The idea of going to a bank for a car loan was sheer lunacy. Going to the bank meant asking the paternal society for help, thus admitting defeat, selling out. With proud individualism, the children of the late 50s, both male and female, were the first generation of Americans to walk the gauntlet from puberty to young adulthood with a set of car keys in one hand and some form of birth control in the other. The beat of rhythm and blues, known as doo-wop on the East Coast, was the background for dancing and dating, as well as serious discussions about chopping, sectioning, and channeling a car punching a mill and controlling the geometry of a rake or California tilt. The ingenuity of hot rodding came from good old-fashioned Yankee ingenuity with some midnight auto shopping thrown in. When money was short, most resourceful lads were able to procure gasoline with a rubber hose, known in California as an oaky credit card. (laughs) This may have been a regression to hunter-gatherer activity, but it was a form of freedom. Irreverence for the public superego was leading, in the eyes of the parents, who were more often full of sexual envy, to the decay of normal socialization. The elders saw sexuality as a threat. They could no longer sell or control their daughters and could not select a bloodline for their grandchildren. Um, The actors in the sexual drama saw it another way. They saw sex as a valuable educational experience. Clearly a new form of political liberation was on the horizon. Uh, Was it? In the early 60s, the car cult and surfer irreverence began to mix with jazz values and folk music. The beatnik of a slightly earlier generation set the pace. Nonconformist cliques, often rounded in a high school context, continued on long after graduation. In the Oakland-San Francisco area, the display of individual worth, the symbolic status of any given participant, was put on parade in two interwoven rituals, the crews and the drags. 
The cruise in the East Bay was ethnically mixed and went along East 14th Street to Oakland to Hayward, easy to 50-mile round trip. The white shoe cruise, uh, essentially the white-collar subculture, went up and down Geary Boulevard in the neutral territory between Lincoln and Washington High Schools. Um, and uh, the the voice of Laughing Sal, he notes, uh, on the beach, a frightening mechanical figure in the funhouse added surreal air to the assembly. So he's just saying, you know, they would drive all up and down the peninsula. They'd go to they go to what is now Silicon Valley along the El Camino Real, which he translates as the road to reality, uh, which is kind of uh, cool. a, apparently according to Tennessee Williams, he called it the road to reality. It's supposed to mean the royal road, but. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, And so everybody cruised on El Camino and Palo Alto. This ritual set the stage for the drama to come. Both millionaires and winos were built on the values absorbed in those cruising car rituals. Uh, On Friday nights, the cars became offices. The back seats were turned into love stations on wheels. Dropouts and future rock stars went through the same initiations. Um, And, yeah, um, you know, he said these were like the new extended families, the sort of art-based culture. and uh yeah he he says you know they uh they've now the rock group and the art cabals and the crews uh of post-adolescent san francisco uh represent at least two generations of tradition the hot rod culture is now extended to every western state and most eastern states where a modicum of affluence uh can be attained and you know he notes white suited east coast writers might affect canes and smug attitudes looking at you tom wolf as they wrote about candy apple paint, I think he is talking about Tom Wolf actually. <laughs> as they wrote about candy apple paint jobs, but they could never have understood what it was like to spray the stuff on, rub it down under a cool freeway overpass, and cruise it down the road. Visitors from the East Coast would never have thought the whole scene fantastic, and could never have understood the meaning of a shibboleth. If it don't go, chrome it. Uh, the forbid the once forbidden rock and roll was played as background to virtually every activity. The same radio stations united the many night haulers. AM radio was it. KYA was popular in 1957 and stayed popular right up until FM took over. But soul stations like KWBR and KSAN, both now long gone as soul stations, were always available at the push of a button. Uh, and here's where, you know, in the still of the night was real. The lyrics even made sense sometimes. The, a party was always happening. Beatniks came to these parties and the crossover was starting. Those who were avid readers and numerous musicians left the cruise for the esoteric sanctuary of a loft party in North Beach. The attractiveness of intellectual stimulation in a non-academic environment could not be ignored. News of the cognoscenti and rumors of wild parties above and beyond the hot rod scene came filtering down. Soon, everyone wanted to be a, quote, beatnik. The intellectual side of the brain and a great deal of social alienation developed rapidly as beatniks like Ginsburg and Ken Kesey and Jack Kerouac influenced this new tribe of baby beatniks. Virtually everyone who wound up contributing to the Haight-Ashbury experience was touched directly or indirectly by the car and motorcycle culture. Almost everybody wanted to belong to something other than their genetic family. The rock band the art cabal, the car club, or the folk and jazz ensemble became the extended family so desperately sought by the rejected and often gifted nonconformists, especially in the Bay Area. As the decades turned, the conservatism of the parental generation conflicted with the advancing dream of personal freedom held by the young people. One custom car commando was overheard saying, if they didn't want us to be free, they shouldn't have taught us about it in the eighth grade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so, uh, yeah. 
the and, more and, like yeah uh, uh, yeah uh, sorry i j- just to really finish here because this will bring us right up to the the acid test and like the vibes uh after 60 after 63 the fully integrated extended family grew rapidly in many cases ties to the birth family restrained the dropouts became black sheep there was pain in this the parents were judging the outcast by old values some even believed their children were becoming communists they were, of course, and this is important, quite wrong. The new movement was an expression of freedoms as American as the hot rods that mobilized it. By 1964, the Kennedy assassination, the music of the Beatles, the Stones, and Bob Dylan merged with the advent of psychotropic drugs and the integration of black values. The genetic strings of the white middle class snapped completely. Certain utopian ideas, even some Marxism, remained always in the background of the San Francisco lifestyle, but basically the mass movement away from middle class values was timely and inevitable these systems provided guidelines for the young <laughs> these systems provided guidelines for the young people as they made the transition from traditional societies to alienated antagonistic politically dangerous free-thinking subcultures once the transition was made they came flooding into the hate ashbury and north beach from the suburbs and from small country towns all over the nation in search of companionship and cheap or even free rent at first they came in slowly and then as the media made a show of it the tidal wave hit it is a tribute, and this is interesting from my own personal experience, it's a tribute to the state of California that the study of the proud traditions of the missions and the westward settlers were mandatory in every school and college, second only to United States history. Thus, every potential commune had at least one leader who had a rough idea of California utopian traditions, traditions that go back to the Elizabethan discovery of New Albion by Sir Francis Drake and to the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Franciscans who, while thinking of establishing a new Jerusalem in California, likened the state to an Islamic caliphate, a paradise on earth. <laughs> uh, yes, although so, I think I think that the name California was indirectly inspired by the idea of of a caliphate, but I think oh, that like interesting. By the, uh, but it was like from a novel or something. Okay. Uh, that uh, yeah, there's a a mythical island of California in the fictional story of Queen Calafia, but that name probably was kind of inspired by. Um, you know, uh, the actual term, uh, Khilafa, you know, that we know mm-hmm. so well from, from ISIS, yeah. uh, or, well, you know, most people know well from ISIS, uh, yeah. Muslim apologies, cause you probably know it from a, a more legitimate <laughs> source, but if you're not, oh, then you sure. probably heard about it, uh, in dark, scary tones from Graham Wood, but, uh-huh. um, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, like, but uh, yeah, also the teaching anyway. about the missions. I mean, I went to Catholic school, so maybe that it makes sense. I would learn about the missions, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, we, in fourth grade you had to do a whole thing about the california mission system and i think you had to like pick a mission maybe like go to go to one that was nearby there's still a bunch around and then write you know a book report on it and things like that so uh that kind of that does kind of hit accurately that um because you know you didn't learn about the california missions you probably learned about what the the puritans or something we learned about long island history uh (laughs) you know we learned about how to pronounce how we're supposed to say long island and not long island uh i don't know if that worked uh but (laughs) uh anyway yeah yeah. um so everyone had um, this kicking around in their brain from going to school in california these were all california natives uh so not Mm -hmm. transplants and uh and I guess, yeah, it emerged with the hot rod culture. And of course, you know, the, the lurking force in the background of all of this is the uh, military industrial complex and the California aerospace industry, which is a huge provider of jobs.
jobs and economic activity in the Bay Area and Southern California um, throughout the 50s and 60s. And, you know, as we speculated before with Kenneth Anger, uh, this kind of um, fetishization, the eroticization of cars and motorcycles and then, you know, the fact that his dad was an engineer working on airplanes, you, you know, there's a – there's an interesting subliminal kind of thing going on with California culture where it's obsessed with these like rocketing powerful machines, mm-hmm. you know, like it's a, like, I mean, the children of rocket engineers were juicing up hot rods at the same time they were trying to build ICBMs and fighter jets, right? Yeah. I mean, the more you talk about this, the more I feel like it might actually be interesting to read, like, some of these, like, uh, like, Song Dynasty, like, Buddhist liturgies, especially with Hank Harrison's, like, uh, allusions to, like, for one, I find it so bizarre to say, like, samurai or, or nihilist. I guess that's probably because, like, in death poetry, like, samurai or, like, tend to, you know, uh, or maybe they, they try to cultivate as part of, like, Bushido, some kind of, like, uh, you know, uh, general, like, uh, dispassion about their own death, but I definitely don't think that that means they, like, are nihilists in the conventional sense of, like, moral nihilism or something like that. I think that it's, like, kind of, I mean, well, I don't know, maybe the idea of the samurai as a cowboy, like, uh, maybe mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood is kind of, uh, nihilist, maybe in a fistful of dollars. I mean, oh, yeah. in a way, sort of like an arch capitalist, but yeah, the more, like, and the sort of the allusion to, like, eighth grade and, like, the, it makes it does make me think about the relevance of these uh you know the like these systems and the idea of like the the binary of like the living and the dead and the passage you read about the sort of contraction of the grateful dead to just the dead um mm-hmm. just to cite that quote from earlier uh it's from a letter uh from Thomas Jefferson to James Madison i think that this part is interesting he says the question whether one generation of men has a right to bind another seems never to have been started either on this or our side of the water. Yet it is a question of such consequence as not only to merit decision, but place also among the fundamental principles of every government. The course of reflection in which we are immersed here on the elementary principles of society has presented this question to my mind, and that no such obligation can be so transmitted, I think, very capable of proof. I set out upon this ground, which I suppose to be self-evident, like very much echoing uh, the way he talks in uh, the uh, Constitution Declaration of Independence. Yeah, Uh, he says... Uh, that the earth belongs in usufruct to the living, that the dead have neither powers nor rights over it, as said before. But this is, you know, very much in contrast to, like, the, you know, I think about uh, G.K. Uh, Chesterton, who we mentioned, like, in our uh, Ouija episode that we just did mm-hmm. for Alara, you know, where he said, like, uh, he said, uh, tradition is a democracy of the dead, you know, that, like, uh, in this sort mm. of uh, vulgar idea of tradition. But uh, there is, like, sort of definitely a sensibility in pre-modern societies that, like, the idea that, the land only belongs to the people who are currently alive and that people who are dead have no like rights or entitlements like that is like, you know, outrageous, like from like a, you know, a pre-modern point of view, Mm, uh, when you're engaging with things like, you know, Arthurian lore or whatever, like, uh, when you encounter this stuff, like it's going to be very much at odds with that idea. Um, I think that like this actually is kind of interesting in line, uh, with the idea of the grateful dead. And you'll see like the, uh, resonances. I think it's a little bit off the beaten path. I think it's like has like a good uh, SJ place in it. It does have to do with like uh, liturgy and actually music, uh, mm-hmm. and that's like uh, interesting. So 
I'm just going to read from this Edward L. Davis, uh, Society and the Supernatural and Song China, which came out mm-hmm. in uh, 2001. Again, I apologize for not being able to pronounce any Chinese words. If I uh, say them, like, you know, I probably am saying them wrong, but it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how to say them. Uh, but I do find the content uh, to be interesting. So he says... The most popular rites for the dead in the Song Dynasty were the Buddhist retreat, uh, you know, Buddhism, retreat of water and land, and the Taoist retreat of the yellow register. Both liturgies had their origin in the 10th century, but their textual elaboration and social diffusion must be seen as a pride to the 12th and 13th. I include a detailed historical and structural analysis of these ritual complexes in the appendix. Among other things, this analysis reveals that the retreats of water and land and of the Yellow Register were converging during this period of textual elaboration and social diffusion. Both liturgies had come to share a similar tripartite structure that included, one, the construction and purification of a ritual space, two, the summoning of the gods, saints, and souls of the dead, including ancestors and hungry ghosts, into the ritual area, three, rites for their deliverance. In the all-important central panel of this liturgical triptych, the panel that forms the implicit frame for much of the analysis in this chapter, the convergence of the two liturgies was even more exact. Both included rites for destroying the earth prisons, for opening the roads from purgatory, for releasing souls from sin or ignorance, for bringing souls into the ritual area, for washing, dressing, and feeding them, and finally for subjecting the souls of the dead to transformation and or conversion. So That sounds like a Grateful Dead concert. Yeah, exactly. I'm just using this as an example. Example of something that like you could find parallel like you know insofar as you can find parallels between this and like the phenomenon of the grateful dead like in american culture you could find parallels between that and like similar phenomena in other cultures you know again like uh i generally caution against like uh retaining with too broad a brush in terms of talking about vast instances of time and space and like you know cross cultural divides but insofar as this has some resonances you can see this in like many cultures including like anglo-saxon ones with like feast for the dead and that type of thing but anyway yeah, yeah and this like is, dia, uh, de, dia yeah. de los muertos obviously um yeah has just, even uh, a lot of aesthetic comparisons to grateful dead iconography. yeah absolutely yeah it's very much influenced by uh that yeah iconography and this I culture actually called, but the yeah uh, yeah hank, hank harrison goes into how these sort of cruising and uh sort of car gang culture and the hot rod culture uh, that did have a large Latin influence um, from, you know, the uh, Latinos living in the mission in San Francisco. And, you know, they would beef a lot, but also the kind of like zoot suit gangs. And uh, I forget the, uh, the I think it was maybe Pachuco. Oh, yeah, Pachuco. Yeah, exactly. The Pachuco Cross, I guess, which was something that was adopted by the Hells Angels. Um, mm-hmm. And then like Pachuco culture, which is kind of similar to kind of zoot suit culture in the fifties, but that had a lot of influence too. I don't know. Um, you know, uh, yeah. it also, the Pachuca insignia was also, um, uh, compared by Hank Harrison to the heads of the Cobra as represented in 1975 by the flag of the Symbionese liberation army. Um, so that was yeah, kind of floating around. Like, and uh, some. Right. Yeah. There was, uh, yeah, that reminds me of the, uh, like uh, the Franklin episode that we did where Michael Casey claimed to be in contact with uh, Patty Hearst. Yes, exactly. But uh, yeah, uh, this is just like an anecdote of like uh, one of these ceremonies, which I think is, you know, this will be the the end of uh, this uh, part. But 
Um, you know, I think this is, this is, uh, you know, uh, fruitful perhaps. Okay. So he writes, uh, this is Edward L. Davis. Then he's going to use an anecdote, uh, about a yellow register retreat. Uh, he says, uh, almost all the accounts of Buddhist and Taoist mortuary ritual concern, uh, in the Yejanzi, which I guess is the text in one way or another, the, uh, they concern in one way or another, the appearance of the dead. Their appearance, normally but not exclusively in visions and in dreams, captured the imagination of Hong Mai's informants more than any other aspect of these rituals. And it can be surmised that it did so precisely because this aspect, again, more than any other, best expressed for them what the rituals were all about. The dead were wont to appear as often at a Buddhist retreat for the spirits of water and land as at a Taoist register, yellow register retreat. In the case of the Buddhist ceremony, however, befitting Buddhism universalist claims, the dead would often appear as a group, which is like just amazing, as often as they would appear individually, whereas in the Taoist ceremony, even if it were open to all, the dead would appear only individually. The following anecdote may be taken as representative of the Yellow Register Retreat, on which I will now focus. Uh, we won't read his focus, but we'll read the anecdote. On the mm -hmm. 16th day of the second month of 1198, a Yellow Register often was held in Tainqing Abbey in Rao Prefecture. It was offered for people who wanted to summon the dead. For each person, it cost uh, uh, 1,200 copper cash. Almost 1,000 people participated in the ceremony. Just at the end of the ceremony, the merchant Fu San saw his mother, who had recently died. She was wearing the clothes that she wore when she was alive. She was drenched from top to bottom and had come from afar. She entered the ritual area. Watching this was so painful that Fu couldn't bear it. He cried bitterly and immediately returned home. His mother gradually followed him home. Their conversation was just as in earlier days. She said, Because of the effort of your paying the money at the sacrifice, my voice is the same as when I was alive. This is the, like the essence of like the idea of the quote, like Grateful Dead. Like, you know, mm. you gave me this money. Okay. I like, you know, yeah. uh, Fu wanted to ask in detail about what had happened to her, but she disappeared suddenly. The daughter of the eye doctor, Wei Shang, was married to Zhu uh, Zhao Xi. In the first month, uh, she had died because of something related to producing milk. She also participated on the altar. When the priest summoned her, Zhu saw her distinctly. Her body was covered in white clothes. She walked through water and bare feet. He could still hear the sound of the water. After she appeared before him, both her feet were still wet. Suddenly, fear came over him. He hurriedly left his wife and returned home. His wife also chased after him. Zhao hid in the bathroom, and his wife entered the kitchen. Zhu observed that his wife's facial expression was like when she was alive. He became even more frightened. He ran to his room and immediately took off his clothes and went to bed. His wife also slept by his side. She left at dawn. So, wow. yeah, they, uh, eerie. yeah, yes, very, very eerie. Um, and a lot of the time the living, like they try to flee the dead and, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, the dead are actually there. There's like a realness to them. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's not just like visions or hallucinations, but at the same time, like the sort of sense of appearance there's something uh, similar going on. I think that these like uh, concerns, in a way, like are uh, suppress and resonate. I feel like mm. uh, this is an interesting uh, connection that's a little bit off the beaten path, but uh, something to contemplate. Uh, something that at least strikes a chord with me in terms of uh, some of this, uh, some of these themes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, perhaps like in a little bit more like rigorous way than some of the links that. Uh, Harrison is drawing, but I think that his the fact that he would these questions would occur to him, uh, you know, suggests.
referential, like, literary aspect of a lot of the things around the Grateful Dead and everything from their song titles to their uh, visual iconography uh, to also the things that Ken Kesey was doing. And Ken Kesey, you know, had gone to the uh, the Stegner creative writing program at Stanford, which is where he wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And so he was he was trained in this very I, I believe Stegner was one of the programs that had sort of CIA connections during the Cold War with the entire sort of MFA industrial complex that started in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's like that's how he ended up in Palo Alto. But uh, but I noticed something interesting here. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll just start because uh, Hank Harrison uh, kind of. He may, he points this out uh, when he's doing a little backstory on San Francisco itself. So he says about kind of the, the absolute you know roots of San Francisco. Like New Orleans in the South and New, New York in the Northeast, San Francisco has always had a bohemian subculture, always the heart, brain, and sexual center of Alta California. San Francisco started out on a rude sexual note. In the beginning, on July 4, 1776, there wasn't any. The Franciscan Padres, who established Mission Dolores in that year, were celibate. The miners, ship captains, and claim jumpers who came later just stayed lonesome. Gold sparkled in every eye, but there were no women. In fact, San Francisco built its first sidewalk for loose women who, although disreputable in Boston, were queens in the tent city of 1852. This reality has never changed. Whores built the town, whores ran the town, civilized the town, and have always done so in an uninterrupted chain of command from the days of mud ruts and sunken cargo ships. Any Any native San Franciscan would be proud to trace his or her matrilineal successor to a night lady and an unknown silk-covered digger who paid for the grand moment in gold dust. Most of the pioneers deny this, but the statistics tell the tale. Whores and hobos, gamblers, robber barons, and, quote, girls posing as refined school marms and princesses. That's what Frisco's built from. Due to its precarious origins, San Francisco has always been a home for bohemians. Robert Frost was born in San Francisco, as was Isadora Duncan and Alex B. Talkless, Gertrude Stein, and Ambrose Bierce, the kinky consciousness of the West. Far prior to the time of Miss Stein and company, San Francisco was the home of scoundrels and fashion-plated overnight millionaires, all of whom lived in the cracks between the fears of earthquakes, poisonings, theft, arson, rape, and all manner of unthinkable crimes. And then he quotes either a poem or a song here that says, The miners came in 49, the whores in 51, and so between the two of them there came the native son. <laughs> so, so okay, so, you know, he um, he talks about drugs. Um, we're all, you know, things like hemp, cocaine, opium, and hooch have always played a major role in San Francisco lifestyle. And the inheritance of the bohemian tradition from Europe and the Orient is direct and undiluted. California's literary traditions from such as Jack London and Robinson Jeffers and Henry Miller speak clearly of the continuity of high-class beatniks now called rich hippies. And San Francisco's history is full of Emperor Norton eccentrics, more so per capita than any other place. Um, but uh, but San Francisco's history is not just a gold mine history, not just a 24-carat meat pile. It's more varied, uneven, indefinable, inconsistent. Even the Elizabethan origin, the landing of Sir Francis Drake, remains a mystery. 
Um, so, okay. So the thing with that is that, I mean, that's very true that San Francisco, you know, I think we talked in episode two about the Crockers and then about like Michael Aquino. I wonder if Michael Aquino could trace his lineage back to a lady of the night in San Francisco, mm-hmm. you know, if it goes back mm-hmm. that far mm-hmm. on his mother's side. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, that kind of whole, uh, milieu. Um, but w- what was interesting about that, that jumped out at me and actually I hadn't been aware of this, but the term acid test uh, that Ken Kesey used, um, it turns out that he was kind of doing some, uh, he was kind of doing a nice little literary twist there because what that was referencing was the acid test that was used by gold miners in the 1850s, which was a method of using a strong acid to separate gold from base metals. And um, and then that term became figurative after a while and became, uh, you know, considered any definitive test for some attribute uh, like of a person's character or the performance of a product. So that's a really interesting way uh, to contextualize Ken Kesey's acid test as both a hearkening back to the gold rush that found that basically founded San Francisco as we know it and had such a huge role in, you know, the drawing people to this, like moths to a flame, seeking wealth and riches and et cetera, et cetera. Um, And also a kind of harrowing experience that would reveal kind of your true character. So, um, you know, I guess I'll, I'll give him credit for a very loaded term uh, in you know, setting up these, but I, it reminded me of how the Grateful Dead stuff harkens back to these more, you know, medieval uh, rituals about summoning the dead and all that stuff out there. They're reaching back, you know, further into the past to rebel against the present, I suppose you could say, to rebel against the, um, the democracy of the dead, uh, I suppose. Yeah, where I guess, like, they're trying to establish, like, a a democracy of the dead or, you know, or something uh, to that effect. I mean, again, like, these, like, uh, dialectics, like, usually, like, are very fraught and they don't, like, fully operate, like, and the the tension between, like, the living and the dead, like, the, uh, you know, the old and the new, like, the whole generational conflict, like, a lot of the time, uh, I feel like these... Uh, you know, binaries kind of break down, like, uh, and there's always, like, some kind of uh, space uh, in, like, the interstices that uh, disrupts them in some way. And, like, the, I guess, I don't know, I feel like the paradox, obviously, like, when you consider, like, all of the, like, practical connections, like, to, like, intelligence agencies and things like that, the Mm -hmm. whole, like, paradigm of, like, you know, this, like, rebellion that was, like, uh, bubbling to, like, burst out kind of breaks down, like, the whole idea of, like, this utopian thrust into the future. Like, uh, again, like, after a certain point, like, the, I don't know, the whole idea of, like, oh, this is something that's moving towards the future, like, and is... Uh, le- like uh, you know, future-looking or utopian versus this is something that's in some way conservative or looking like towards the past. Yes. Uh, that, which like, which is fascinating down, you know? to think of when uh, you considerably because I think there always was a kind of association. Certainly when I was growing up, that the Grateful Dead at the very le- I mean they were hippies. They were kind of nonconformist. They didn't really want to, you know, get in with like straight society. But all that stuff coded to me as more or less kind of 
more on the left than on the right, like more mm-hmm. liberal, more revolutionary, more radical. But then you would notice things and you do see some interesting people pop up like in the, right. the Long Strange Tip documentary, the most funny of which is Tucker Carlson, who I think I've definitely mentioned before is like a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, to think that this sort of bow tie wearing young Republican frat boy could vibe with what the Grateful Dead was selling, you know, at first glance kind of seems a little weird. But then when you dig a little bit deeper into the real kind of ethos and even their apolitical stance, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I think categorically I can say is like bullshit, like no, no kind of music is like purely apolitical, but certainly not any kind of music that is making such a show out of rebelling against conformity and, you know, uh, trying to, you know, challenge the norms of society. Like, how could it not be? But, you know, they, they always copped out a little bit. And then you would see groups that like the Hells Angels, like floating around them. Uh, and people like John Perry Barlow, who literally ran Dick Cheney's congressional campaign in the 1980s. Right. And I think mostly considered himself a, a Republican. Was maybe a huge until booster Obama. for Dick Cheney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like a, a fervent Republican. And yeah, absolutely. And, so, and as, as we're sure. going to yeah. see, like a lot of these hangers-ons like came from a deep kind of old, uh, came from deep, power political power and money in wyoming uh he was the like the grandson of like a mormon pioneer uh and very wealthy rancher who i think became a state uh representative and you know had this like his family had a twenty two thousand acre ranch in wyoming and he went to an elite all boys uh boarding school where he became friends with uh, Bob Weir, who was also a rich kid. Uh, He was adopted by uh, Frederick Weir, who is a wealthy uh, engineer in the Bay Area. And they grew up in Atherton, which I think still to this day is like where all the Google CEOs live and is maybe the wealthiest zip code in America. Um, And he was also sent to uh, the... Um, I forget the name of it right now. I have it written down somewhere, but they became friends at this like elite boarding school. So, I mean, you start to see maybe some of these people kind of floating around and their politics do start to get a little more vague. And, you know, you realize that, um, I, I mean, I would say, I don't know if you could categorize like what their political philosophy kind of became it, it was either kind of like check out of politics and like it all sucks and don't, you know, don't care about any of it, which I think was kind of more Jerry Garcia's position on it. He was kind of, you know, he at least was a principled hippie and not engaging with it at all, as opposed to some of the other Grateful Dead people who like endorsed Obama and like, mm-hmm. you know, just became like libs, at, like rich libs after a while. But, you know, it, it's I don't know if you would call it like even left libertarian, but I would say, you know, libertarian. So on that count, they are kind of I take them at their word when they talk about how, you know, really like there is no band more American than the Grateful Dead. Like I would, and you know, of course the way it's positioned in sixties culture is that's a big victory because these square, these Eisenhower era squares claim to be the real Americans, but nah, man, like we're the real Americans, but it's still kind of not that fundamentally different at the end of the day. It's just like, you're kind of the cowboy settler colonialist, uh, of the mind, I guess, uh, of the lifestyle. Um, yeah. you know, you're like a cultural uh, pioneer, uh, but you right. have the same kind of manifest destiny mentality and you're not really challenging um, the 
kind of economic, social, political structures in which, you know, that govern all of our lives. Uh, you're carving out your own little safe space where you can just kind of do drugs and like party and, and have a good time, which is that's bigger than the Grateful Dead. I mean, I feel like so many different kind of genres, whether you think of like EDM festivals or like Coachella or things like that. I think a lot of these things have been mainstreamed and kind of uh, used. And in that sense, they are a very kind of interesting Silicon Valley innovator because, and I maybe, maybe we have to like kind of on one level, look at them like that as a Silicon Valley project, because they're so tied in with the development of the internet and all of this, uh, electronic technology. I mean, even Hank Harrison says they filed patents. They had some of the most advanced, um, like audio technology of the time and pioneered in media, you know, I mean, they, they, uh, yeah, they pioneered a lot of like new media stuff and were very tight on like a personal level with a lot of Silicon Valley people. And there were a lot of deadheads in Silicon Valley, which makes sense. Cause that's literally where, you know, they came from. And, uh, yeah, there's just, you know, yeah. I mean, they're the ultimate case study in the fact that, like, you know, saying, like, this music's not for sale is, like, the ultimate, is, like, a marketing slogan, you know, and the whole ethos of the Grateful Dead, like, even the Grateful Dead themselves, like, the idea that, I mean, like, at a certain point in time, like, there perhaps there was a significant community of squares who were in some way, like, threatened by the existence of this band, but I think that, like, to say that this was in any way, like, I don't know, like, uh, I, I feel like this is the uh, application of uh, these forces uh, in the, like, you know, service of not really, like, or uh, directed change in some way, maybe. Yes, yes, or, exactly, like, I exactly. don't necessarily think that, like, you know, uh, there's a lot of, like, contradictions inherent, like, in the image of that stuff, I think. Uh, in the, yeah, no, the uh, and, and I think I, that the occult yeah. stuff, the symbology, like that helps like these contradictions uh, to be in some way like stabilized or reconciled or to not be interrogated because like a lot of the time, uh, you know, that sort of liminal quality that like both andness is part of that world mm-hmm. of like the dead and the crossover between the dead and the living. Uh, you know, and the, I mean, and I guess that does have a connection that we've drawn many times with the virtuality of the internet. Um, yeah, but, yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. And uh, also towards like modern towards like the quote unquote new left, which they weren't, they were kind of in and out of interacting with, cause obviously there was a radical political scene, um, in, you know, the sixties and like the Bay area, it was the, the locus of, I think it was the most active region for FBI COINTELPRO activity and surveillance and harassment and all these things. And you did have a lot of like radical, people um but just another weird thing that i noticed was like back and forth when hank harrison he becomes the manager of the grateful dead in 1965 like i think either right before the acid tests uh start but after they've changed they've sort of formed and become like the warlocks like he mentions that you know he was bouncing around um 
yeah, like the year before the Warlocks were formed, he had been studying psychology at San, at uh, San Francisco State. And uh, kind of going to what you said, he was kind of proud that most of the graduate students there were somehow attempting to replace Watsonian behaviorism with ethological science. The idea was to supplant Pavlov's dog with Lily's dolphins. <laughs> so, right, so yeah. <laughs> he was getting into this kind of woo-woo territory. But then mm-hmm. this is a weird connection. During the 1964 season, the year before the Warlocks were formed, I, Hank Harrison, was recruited by the great Saul Alinsky to help organize shop-ins. And cool. so he was like a, he was mentored by Saul Alinsky, um, who, you know, we could get, you know, folks like, you know, yeah. or do like Glenn Beck what voice. Is, and What is a uh, shop-in? Sorry. I, uh, oh, okay. I guess demonstrators went to a store posing as customers, pile a basket or trolley high with groceries, take them to the checkout, and then refuse to pay leaving the goods piled at the checkout. Wow, okay, I see. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, after right. he, after he, then he came back to, um, well, actually, uh, the, I think we can stitch together because Harrison's narrative is, like, a little bizarre, but the way he more or less tells it, okay, so during 1964, he went uh, and was organizing under Saul Linsky, who has been accused of, uh, I was just reading separately, like, in the last week or two, that, you know, uh, kind of a early, like, color revolution kind of pioneer, like, fake left sort of whatever. Um, obviously, you know, um, I think the, the connections between, like, Obama or Hillary with, like, Saul Linsky would speak more to the fact that they're probably CIA than that they're, like, secret Maoists. Uh, Saul Linsky was like a lib. He was not a Marxist organizer. Just, you know, make that clear. But he, you know, he spent about a year gone from the Bay Area. But then when he came back um, for four months in 1965, he had returned with, um, he had just returned from the Millbrook estate where Timothy Leary was hanging out after, you know, the Mellon family had given him this uh, this mansion up in, uh, uh, wasn't it in Millbrook, New York? You know, in upstate New York, where he was running the If If Foundation that we mentioned uh, previously with uh, Richard Alpert slash Ram Dass. And he had brought back with him like a bag full of LSD spiked sugar cubes that he then started to distribute to members of then the Warlocks and other people around like the Palo Alto music scene and started taking it himself. And then after, um, I guess he managed the Warlocks for about four months in 1965. Then he went back to Chicago to visit Alinsky at the Industrial Areas Foundation, which just sounds, I don't know, sus. Um, Mm -hmm. Sounds... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a oh, it's the largest network of local faith and community based organizations um, that was uh, founded by Saul Linsky, Roman Catholic Bishop Bernard James Scheel, and businessman and founder of the Chicago Times Marshall Field the Third, um, who I guess was a big fan of uh, Saul Linsky and a big mm-hmm. big backer of his. I think his uh, one of his sons. Uh, does something now. Uh, but yeah, they basically owned the Chicago sun and were like new controlled the newspapers in, you know, Chicago, very plugged in anyways. Um, so that's a little weird. And he doesn't, not that I've seen in the book, he doesn't really 
explain like how he ended up at the if if foundation hanging out with tim leary and getting a bunch of lsd to bring back to palo alto and spread it to people and then goes back to working for saul Alinsky. like we're already seeing just like a very dizzying like strange assortment of individuals doing work with each other in 1964 and 65 you know before the the lsd revolution had really started to to blow out and then i guess shortly after that the acid tests begin uh, at the end of 1965. Um, uh, I think the first one, there's even disagreement on like who was at the first acid test, which ones were the first. Um, and I guess the, uh, at the first one, uh, 27th of November in Soquel, California at Ken Babs's house on, I guess uh, eh, he recalls it as Halloween night. And they did, uh, there's a mystery around whether or not the Warlocks played. There was a flyer that showed up, but then other people um, have said that this flyer is forged and there's like witnesses uh, that say that they didn't play, but they were there hanging out with like some of the merry pranksters. And I guess December 4th in San Jose, where weirdly they were playing at a house like a few, like a block or two away from where the Rolling Stones were playing that night, they made their first performance as the Grateful Dead. And then there were, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. There were like 15 to 20 acid tests. The very last one, which was billed as a graduation um, uh, in March 1967. Uh, And because, of course, on October 6th, 1966, uh, LSD was made illegal. So all this stuff up to this point was not necessarily breaking the law. You know, there, there's all kinds of things with like with the acid test. One thing that does stand out to me is in the few articles that I looked up talking about them, nobody will give a straight answer on where the LSD came from. Now, Hank Harrison mentions bringing acid from Millbrook, you know, to give out to certain people. But I don't know if he had the quantities available or if he was around the whole time to source more of it. This was also, I think, before I think there's there's some confusion over uh, another interesting individual, Augustus Owsley Stanley III, who became known as the Acid King and was the sound engineer for the Grateful Dead. And I guess Sometimes it's said that he provided the he manufactured the LSD for the acid tests, but eh, yeah, he says his first shipment of LSD uh, arrived on March thirtieth, nineteen sixty five, and he produced three hundred thousand hits, um, two hundred and seventy micrograms each, which is honestly a lot. That's a heavy dose for one hit. Uh, by May nineteen sixty five, then he returned to the Bay Area. Okay, so Wikipedia, with no citation here, says in September 1965, Stanley became the primary LSD supplier to Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. By this time, Sandoz LSD was hard to come by, and Owsley Acid had become the new standard. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was manufacturing, you know, LSD at that point. But then I found in another interview where I think it was Ken Babs who, you know, allegedly hosted the first uh, the first acid party. He says in this one interview that I found that contrary to popular belief, the pranksters didn't provide the acid. 
Ken Babs explains, just because we used LSD doesn't mean we were promoting its use. LSD is a dangerous drug if taken lightly. One, uh, if one must be of sound mind and body and have good touchstones in life. If not, they will fall by the wayside muttering and mumbling like a ravaged mind sucked by Venusians, which is a way, I guess, of breaking down conformist ideology. Ugh, yikes. Okay, so they're saying they didn't provide it, but they're obviously kind of playing a little bit fast and loose um, with uh, yeah, with some of the facts there. And I saw and there was another interview. I'm trying to find where it was, where somebody gets very kind of uh, uptight when they ask them about that Halloween party that was near where the Rolling Stones were playing. And they said, you know, nobody ever wants to talk about where the acid came from. And, you know, nobody's going to answer that question. So I guess everyone's very tight lipped about where that acid came from. And so, you know, since we know that uh, Allen Ginsberg, Ken Kesey, Robert Hunter, and possibly Jerry Garcia, but definitely those three were all official MK Ultra volunteers taking psychedelic drugs at Stanford University, I believe in 1962 and 63 were the years that they were doing that, but they all went through and got turned on directly by the LSD. Now, Hank Harrison says that when he brought back all those uh, cubes from the Millbrook estate that he had taken one the night that he went to see Jerry Garcia play and they hung out and he gave the acid to some other people, but he didn't give it to Jerry yet. But then a few weeks later, Jerry took it for the first time. And, and this is supposed to be in 1965, but if Jerry Garcia was taking it in MK ultra context in 1963, uh, you know, it, 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 this is where things start to get incredibly sus and weird and start to break down because, you know, who is the driving force behind, you know, the, these acid parties? Was it really just a groovy idea that Ken Kesey had? And then he, he paints his school bus and runs off around the country with Neil Cassidy the real-life inspiration for Dean Moriarty from Kerouac's On the Road, very much in the mode of, like, what you said, like a living saint. I mean, this is, like, a celebrity to, like, beatnik-type people. And they go around doing all kinds of weird pranks and, un, you know, and uh, secretly dosing people with LSD all over the place and also doing weird things like going to Arizona and doing, like, an ironic campaign rally for Barry Goldwater in 1964. Oh, yeah, I forgot. This is actually before they did the Merry Pranksters thing in 1964. And then they came back, and then they did the the acid test. But really makes you wonder, like, what the hell Ken Kesey was kind of up to, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I mean, he did have some money from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and, you know, which uh, I just watched the other day. Yeah. Actually a good movie. I mean, I... I I wanted to be sure in case I really talk shit about him uh, being just like a CIA gobbledygook, but uh, it is quite moving. I uh, I did weep a little bit at the end when Chief runs away, uh, and, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> stuff like it is. Kind of, and you know, uh, but but it's interesting that was that book was directly inspired by him working at the Palo Alto Veterans Hospital, and also inspired by his LSD experiments with MK Ultra and kind of the, the lengths that the medical establishment would go to to like lobotomize you or control you and all these things i think it, i think maybe the reason that book is good as opposed to like all of his later work which nobody kind of the, the consensus is is like not as interesting is because he was getting at something that was real that you know the sort of um uh, the biopolitical control of the individual in American society and the uh, use of drugs 
and, you know, uh, prison and things like that to psychologically control people and make them conform. You know, I think that that was all salient. It's just that, you know, I, I think maybe Keezy, Keezy seems to me like a classic um, cultural Cold War limited hangout artist. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. exposing something true that is fucked up about American culture at the time, but then offering a pseudo solution, which is, you know, as Tim Leary would coin it, turn on, tune in, drop out, get freaky, be a prankster, never, uh, you know, tell the truth uh, or be serious, uh, you know, take a cloak of – cover yourself in a cloak of irony, um, make cum jokes, sit on a hot couch, et cetera. Sorry. Um, uh, um, <laughs> well, yeah. Like, I definitely you know, think that there was some, like, degree of – I wouldn't necessarily draw a, a hard line between the uh, acid tests and the like his MK Ultra like LSD experiments. In fact, I think that uh, what was his name Hunter uh, was it Robert Rob Hunter. Hunter? Yeah, yeah, Robert Hunter was also like you know first took LSD like in an MK Ultra type yeah. context like on no, the they record. all did it in the same. So, I think it was the same sub project trial at Stanford that they all did. Um, yeah, I definitely think that time. everything that was, in, like, they were literally acid tests, I'm certain, at this point, and I think that it's almost, like, to the extent that it's at all a secret, it's a pretty open one, that, uh, there was... Well, yeah, but, mean, but of course, the, the limited hangout that, that's been spread by everybody from Tim Leary to John Lennon, uh, and everybody else in between is that, like, this is the ultimate, uh, bumbling empire right, kind exactly. of blowback. So ironic, yeah, exactly, like, whoa, like, big, uh, yeah, the CIA really blew it, because they, you know, uh, accidentally created this radical, rebellious, uh, social movement, like, which... Yeah. Yeah, uh... Which is... I, is a really yeah. frust- I mean, th- that's a convincing thing for, I think, for a lot of people to grab onto because it, it still syncs up with and validates all of the 60s countercultural history yeah, exactly, that we all get kind of taught. That makes them even cooler because they, like, you know, subverted uh, the CIA, which I don't really think is the case. Like, maybe they're, like, not everything was meticulously planned, but I think that, like, the, like, the whole idea was that, like, there would be ru- sort of running with this and experimentation involved. I don't think that, like, you know, maybe there wasn't a plan that everything went according to, but I don't mm-hmm. think that that necessarily means, that very, you know, by that fact itself, uh, I don't think that, that means that, like, some kind of plan was subverted. Uh, I think that, absolutely you know, the plan because was that it would be experimental and, you know, that this was something that was desired. And that uh, that is something that definitely, uh, I think it was a memo that Tom O'Neill uncovered in his Chaos book, which does, you know, it's more about the L.A. scene, which we're going to, that'll probably be chapter two and whatever we call this series, uh, what was going on down in Laurel Canyon at the time. But he did find a memo from, I believe it was Lewis Jolly and West writing to Sidney Gottlieb, the head of MKUltra, that that mentions a kind of a cryptic line about the, you know, controlled experiments they were doing with LSD, but that naturally, like, and this is, he was writing in the early 60s, he said, naturally, we're going to have to take this research out in the field eventually. 
And I think this is after like Midnight Climax, which also was in the heart right. of the of the beat scene up in North Beach in San Francisco in the 50s. Um, but it, it's after they had already like taken it out in very limited ways or given it to certain intelligentsia. Now, you know, so I think maybe what he's alluding to was like we need to like actually take it out into the so Mary. I don't know. Maybe the Mary Prankster thing. Uh, had some kind of connection with that, you know, being a Johnny Appleseed running around to different cities and just handing it out like candy. And then these acid tests are like, let's bring in young students, anybody that wants to volunteer, and let's let's test this under social situations and see what I, I believe. I can't find the uh, thing right now, um, but I'd read. I'd read, you know, they experimented at the acid test with kind of different kind of rooms sometimes where like, you know, or, you know, or they would split the room in two where uh, kind of like a rave you would go to later on. Uh, somebody does make the, the connection that like, you know, this is kind of where raves came from, you know, uh, at least, mm-hmm. in, you know, in a modern sense. Um, but, they, you know, in one room, it would be like an A-B testing thing where maybe they would have a more like chill, like zen kind of spiritualistic room where everyone was taking acid and, and chanting om together and doing this like mm-hmm. kind of real hippy dippy stuff. Then there was like the psychological kind of overload room where Grateful Dead was like jamming out and doing weird audio experiments. And there were strobe lights and, you know, flashing colors on the wall and stuff like that and it was like a concert it was like a party and it seemed like you know they I'm sure they probably got some useful insights from both of those but I think um, eh, whatever I was reading kind of made the kind of a speculation that you know they if they hadn't discovered yet the potential for using LSD perhaps as a social disruption agent in the youth culture, that perhaps that was their aha moment where they realized that if you melded this with like a music scene and then you got everybody vibing and taking acid and listening to this like crazy blues rock music, then, you know, that that was kind of, that would really draw, that would be the real siren song that, and it, it kind of did. It drew everybody uh, from around the country in 1967 and 68 to like, you know, run away from home and like, you know, migrate to San Francisco to the Haight-Ashbury to search this kind of new scene, this new thing that was happening. So uh, maybe they did, you know, maybe this was like, uh, this is also around the time that like a couple MK sub projects that we really don't know like anything about uh, also got founded like MK search, which I've always been fascinated by. As far as I know, I think all the documents for mk search were destroyed and we know very little about it but we do know that it unlike monarch we know that it existed as a program with like money allocated to it it was like on the they at least had the records of it you know uh and i think there was also maybe one called mk often and Mm -hmm. those start i know mk search i believe started in 1964 so and then, you know, presumably ended when the rest of them or, you know, went further underground when it all got exposed in 1973. But so what was MK Search doing for those nine years? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not yeah. saying necessarily this was the part where we bring it into the culture and set up cults and like yeah. make rock bands like, you know, as Target as your brain said, you know, when, you know, when the social crisis deepens, there's no time for democracy. And notice how sudden, suddenly hundreds of pop idols appear, their guitars mm-hmm. calling you to the barricades, you know, and that kind right. of thing happening. And it's like, well, yeah, that really did kind of happen. And the, the mm-hmm. guitars did call everybody the barricades. But then what was the end result? I mean, we saw basically the complete 
complete crushing of the American left, which, you know, uh, had a lot of interesting and radical currents. And I don't know if I would say it was kind of uh, ascendant, but there was definitely, I think, a potentiality there in the 60s for uh, the, st- the, the, the sort of mainstream square Eisenhower culture that all these people were railing against and thought was whack. Um, there, there was an opportunity maybe for that to be challenged and replaced with something that was like actually more politically and socially progressive. But unfortunately, um, all of the potential leaders of that uh, got mysteriously assassinated by lone gunmen throughout the 60s. So mm-hmm. dang yeah. it. I, I guess we couldn't go that think, way. I definitely don't think the Grateful Dead was. It's like shocking. I was saying uh, before we started recording that it's really amazing that like during the time they had positioned themselves so strongly as like an apolitical band. Uh, yeah. like, it's, like I feel like even... I mean, uh, she definitely uh, waffled around a little bit, but I feel like even Taylor Swift is political at this point, you know? So, like, to be an apolitical yeah. band, like, in the 60s and 70s, like, that's really a lot. Uh, one of the things that, again, like, I really didn't know anything about the Grateful Dead prior to, like, researching for this. Like, I just had, like, very little uh, interest in, like, any of this. I hadn't really listened to their music. Like, I'm definitely not, like, a... Uh, definitely not a jam band uh, type of person, but I was uh, intrigued to find they had done an album called like uh, Blues for Allah, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, you know, I didn't like uh, listen to it fully. I only listened to a little bit of it, but you know, it's very much like in that sort of vein of uh, you know uh, Middle Eastern inspired kind of like atonal uh, melodies. I guess like uh, they claim that uh, the title track of Blues for Allah was supposed to be a eulogy for King Faisal. But I kind of got the <laughs> impression again. Wait, like, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> what the but hell? that's like what they said. However, okay. I did get the strong impression. There's another song where they also mentioned that was written by uh, by Hunter. Um, I think that yeah, it's all. It was also uh, Hunter who wrote Blues for Allah, and he wrote another song where he mentioned Allah, uh, which is like "What's Become of the Baby," the title of that referring to like the Lewis Carroll poem of course you know the psychedelic um yeah it's all just like so cringe and incredibly lame but uh anyway yeah like uh and uh i like you know they say it's about king faisal and maybe it is because he was uh you know obviously uh involved in middle eastern politics heavily at that time but it almost seemed to me that this song and the other mention of Allah are like about like are kind of like sort of uh uh, maybe I'm just like, you know, uh, jumping at shadows here, but I felt like these are kind of about Israel uh, mm. and like, you know, uh, uh, if, for instance, they say like these another like, so settler painful. cowboy state. It's so painful to even read. Well, you know, it's just like peace, man, you know, like yeah. uh, so like Arabian wind for one, uh. like just kill me, just kill me. With <laughs> this stupid, you know, the needle's oh eye God. is thin. Ships of state sail on mirage and drown in sand out in no man's land where Allah does command. What good is spilling blood? It will not grow a thing. 
taste eternity, the sword sings blues for Allah, and the chorus is inshallah. I just like, wow. this is like worse than like Aladdin. Like literally like this is worse than like the music from Aladdin. Yeah, like, uh, uh, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty, that's pretty it great. It gets even uh, worse. It's just like all these cringy like desert, like, you know, like Arabian Nights, like Orientalist cliches. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the one like what's become of the baby is, is really, uh, just as bad like uh you know uh it's it seems also to be a reference to like the six-day war and stuff and it came out like i think hmm. a couple years after that but yeah, yeah there's a line yeah. where he says like uh he refers to you know the lighting the polished ice caverns of Khan, where in looking glass you know like referring to cool like, Khan poem. again like yeah. stupid lame like you know cheesy, freshman like, year shit freshman you know, year yeah, english uh, 101 shit oh uh, so the, yeah where in the looking glass fields of illusion wandered the child who was perfect as dawn what's become of the baby this cold december morning racing rhythms of the sun all the world revolves captured in the eye of odin Allah, mm. pray where are you now? All Muhammad's men blinded by the sparkling water. So I feel like that's about, like, you know, uh, about, like, the Six-Day War, you know? Uh, yeah, like yeah. Like, they're blind, you know, they, all Muhammad's men, like, couldn't win, you know? So, yeah. like, it's like, oh, we're apolitical, but we're taking, like, a stupid, annoying, uninformed stance on something that we have, like, no stake in whatsoever.
character, like at one point he got like really angry and had a huge fight with, uh, I guess, uh, with Weir. Bob Weir. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Over, uh, you know, how he wasn't saying the right words. Uh, and then he was, you know, uh, he said to, uh, Barlow, you know, uh, you can, you can have him or whatever. Uh, yeah. So he, basically, so, yeah, yeah. Barlow like, became so kind of the, yeah, yeah they, they almost yeah. had their own, like, cause they were the two main lead singers, uh, usually more Garcia than Weir, but, uh, Hunter became kind of like the, the lyric, you know, the lyricist for Garcia and, uh, JP Barlow kind of became the main lyricist for the Weir songs and right. they occasionally overlap, but they, it's a very weird setup. Like that there's very few bands that have a, like a setup like yeah, that. Yeah. A just lyricist kind of is not in the band that like, yeah. I, like it took me a second to wrap my mind around that. Like, uh, when I, like, uh, you know, someone was telling me independently like about, uh, Barlow and she's like, yeah, he was the lyricist for the Grateful Dead. And I was like, oh, you know, what instrument did he play in the band? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, cause it's so bizarre that the Grateful Dead of all people, you know, it's like, we're just jamming, you know, like they would have like a separate lyricist they would consult with. That's and Robert Hunter was a music, Robert Hunter was a musician. Like he played in yeah. like bands with Jerry Garcia when, during their like bluegrass folk days. And I don't know if JP Barlow could play, but they, they kept adding people to the band too. They'd find like a, a, a groovy, you know, keyboardist or something. And just like, and mm-hmm. you know, a woman who could sing background vocals and they would just like bring them along and like bring them in a band. So it is kind of weird that uh, maybe these guys just like had no interest in, performing it, it, it's just kind of bizarre but it has a kind of like given both of their backgrounds i mean uh, they it almost seems like there's something more going on i don't know like a, like a weird handler thing like here you go like here like why would a band yeah. that's so all about being like These free words, and you loose, must say precisely like, yeah. you know like i i'm gonna get heated and upset if you deviate from them in performance it's very strange. Yeah, they're kind of ritualistic be, in a way. Like yeah, exactly. Like an like incantation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Like uh, or you know, like and all the sort of things that the band was into. I mean, again, like their larger cultural currents. You could point to that. But at the you know to really, I think uh, if we're still uh, if it still is necessary at some level, which I feel like it really even shouldn't be to prove like the, uh, you know, uh, it, embedment of this or the entanglement of this with, uh, the kind of experimentation that was going on in, in the intelligence community at the time, uh, all of the same like themes that they were interested in are like focuses of the band, like the yeah. power of like you know the the cultivation of these new sort of musical technologies that they sort of innovated like the whole idea of the wall of sound like uh yes. and the use yeah. of this and this like you know uh very controlled environment uh you know the mm-hmm. religious experience mm-hmm. psychedelics the mind like nietzsche you know philo- like these types of uh philosophies engaging with them in an intellectual way like the the birth of tragedy you know mm-hmm. uh like and of course, you know, let's not forget our you know. uh, the other uh, Stanford adjacent guy and Esselin adjacent guy uh, who, you know, pops in and out of all this is like Joseph Campbell. Um, and right. I feel like a lot of like the the sort of um, the myth making of the Grateful Dead and the drawing, it, it syncs up very well with like, you know, Hero of a Thousand, with a Thousand Faces and the idea that they're like archetypal kind of heroic narratives that recur throughout history. And so we should try to tap into those because they have this kind of subliminal appeal, you know, to audiences. And it, it seems like they were, I can't remember if uh, Robert Hunter 
like studied under Joseph Campbell or was ever friends with him, but I think he he was very much kind of on that that kind of tip um, it, philosophically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that's really that's the kind of like again like today. I don't think that people who work in anthropology, folklore, or anything like that like really take Joseph Campbell very seriously uh but at obviously like in these circles like these types of understandings of this stuff i mean people don't take the birth of tragedy very seriously as an actual explanation of greek drama but there was definitely uh an interest like for these people and the idea of uh ritual and like its power was something that uh you know i think that both artists and uh, you know, people for both artistic purposes and for other purposes, people were interested in, in marshalling. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that you can definitely see uh, that going. And there's just so many things that are just, again, it's like many of these situations where you have just like a, a you know, a glut or a surplus of circumstantial evidence. But uh, there's just like so many conspicuous and bizarre things about mm-hmm. uh, the Grateful Dead. Uh, and fact, Also, like, uh, yeah, something yeah. that I, I noticed about Robert Hunter that was interesting. So he, he actually did the MKUltra Stanford uh, tests in 1962, and then shortly after that uh, became, for a little while, uh, a Scientologist. Oh, cool. And uh-huh. he's not he's not even the only sci- he's not even the only Scientologist to be in the Grateful Dead. There was also uh, Tom Constantin, who was uh, Hank Harrison says he was friends with in the early early sixties before who um, was uh, in the I think he was like a classically trained pianist or something, but ended up in the Air Force as a computer programmer while he was like in the Grateful Dead and was also had joined the Church of Scientology. So he, along with uh, Pigpen, were the only two members of the Grateful Dead that didn't drop acid because, you know, Scientology is very anti uh, psychotropic drugs. And I guess like his uh, his abstention from dropping acid, the fact that he was like an active duty, like Air Force guy, like doing, uh, uh, you know, computer. I think he was at Nellis Air Force Base where the a lot of the drone program today is now uh, that's in Las Vegas. And, you know, he was, like, like playing gigs for two years, uh, 68 to 70, with The Grateful Dead, but he was also, like, a very devout Scientologist, which they didn't seem to have, like, a problem with so much, but it was more that Scientology prohibited him from doing acid that they didn't like. Uh, They seemed to be pretty cool with, like, L. Ron Hubbard in general, and I guess if, you know, Robert Hunter was, like, low-key, kind of into them, and, of course, you know, uh, Charles Manson, another big figure of this decade in this whole scene uh, that, you know, that pops in and out, he briefly got involved with Scientology when he was in prison uh, in the early 60s, so there's some, like, weird kind of, like, mind control, maybe things happening there, but... Yeah, there's just so, so, so much going on. Um, do we want to just take a little break now? Um, yeah. We're a little past, like, 145. Then maybe we can uh, maybe talk about Tim Leary a little bit, who kind of intersects. And, well, because I think his his ideas that, you know, his weird stories about, like, working for the CIA are probably relevant to all this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, You were just tuning into a special presentation of The Warlocks of Palo Alto, The Grateful Dead as Mass Ritual, Part 1, Episode Number 33, 
of subliminal jihad. Tune in next week for part two.